We are continuing uh, in our series today, the, the comeback, and we are looking at David's story today, which probably, if you didn't see it in the bulletin or on the posters, if you missed that, then uh, certainly would have gathered that from the song that we just heard. Um, you know, we're familiar with, with David, probably among many, many people in the Bible, David stands out as one of those individuals that even if you're not um, overly familiar with the Bible, with God's Word, or you haven't spent a lot of time in church, uh, you still know a little bit about David, most likely. Uh, He's that kind of a person. He's one of Israel's greatest kings in all of their history. And certainly things in David's life, like becoming a a king after being a shepherd boy before that, slaying a, a bear and a lion, and then slaying Goliath. That stands out. He wrote most of the Psalms that we have. Those are all great things that we can recognize about David's life. And, and he had great, great achievements throughout his life and throughout being the king of Israel that he was. But one thing in addition to those great things stands out equally to all of his achievements and in some cases maybe even exceeds it. And that's David's sin. It's just as much a part of his story as anything else. David's sin with Bathsheba. And the Bible records the events that led up to that sin as being something that starts off fairly innocently. David is home in his palace, and he can't sleep. He's restless. So he gets up and he walks along the roof of the palace trying to bring sleep to his his mind. And he looks around. You know, he's just surveying the view of Jerusalem before him. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees it. He sees down below. He sees a woman bathing. And the Bible tells us that she was an exceedingly beautiful woman. And when 2 Samuel 11 tells us that he sees this and that David saw a woman bathing, what's taking place there is that David gazed at Bathsheba. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? That's the idea behind that old song, that old kid song. He kept his eyes on her. It wasn't like he, he sees this and then he looks away. He sees it and his eyes bounce off. No, he sees it and his eyes stay there. They're fixed. He gazes after the image that he's seeing. And now common sense tells you that uh, that's a pretty questionable place to, to be bathing, right? I mean, hopefully none of you have to write in on your notes, note to self, don't bathe on the rooftop. I mean, that, that should be just part of your, your thinking. That's not the place to do that. So uh, there's some questionable uh, thought there on Bathsheba's part, but by far the responsibility of this sin lies with David, because as he kept his eyes on her and looked with lustful desire, that quickly led to then him choosing to act on that. 
And that's what happens. That's, that's the danger. That's the danger and the power of lust is it very quickly results in action. And that's the danger and the power of sin in general, uh, is that what we see with David, the fact that this takes up so much of his story, despite all the good that he's done, that's what sin does to us. When we choose to give in to sin, the danger of it, the power of it, is that it can very easily and quickly rise up to the same level of all the good that we do in our lives. And in many cases, it exceeds and eclipses the good. So much so that many times our wrong gets remembered long after our good. And we see that on display in in David's life. So he, he kept his eyes on her. He looked with lustful desire, which then quickly led to him choosing to do something about it outside of his mind. And that's the way sin works. That's, that's what happens with us. That's why Jesus was so clear in his teaching that whoever looks at a woman lustfully, same for a woman toward a man, by the way, whoever looks lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's going to be true of, of all of us. And the sin that, that took place with David, the fact that he sinned in his mind before he sinned with his body, that is also true of all of us. Sin, lust, pride, arrogance, jealousy, all of it, it, it starts in the mind. And we sin in our mind long before we sin with the body. The Bible is also very clear about the nature of temptation and the quick progression involved if we give in to it rather than giving it and ourselves to God. James 1.13-15 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God, why are you tempting me? This has to be coming from God. Let no one say that. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He himself tempts no one. So then where does temptation come from is the next question. And the answer is here in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured. Think of a fishing lure. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Can't put that on God. It comes from within. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And it will happen every time this way. If it's not physical death that it results in immediately, then it certainly will result in the death of trust that you have with people that you've built up. And if you sin against the people that have come to trust you, there's a death that takes place in that trust and then that has to be regained and and really birthed again and grown again. There's a death that takes place in relationships. When, When I sin against someone in my life that I love and that is close to me, then I, I have a I've committed a death in some way and in some fashion to that relationship. There's a death that takes place. There's a death in peace. When we sin, our peace leaves us. So there's, there's always 
death that comes from sin that's left unchecked. It always results in that in some form or another. And David experienced just how true that is. He saw that firsthand. And so do we when we don't flee from the source of our temptation, whatever it may be, in the moment that we're faced with it. When we choose to yield to it rather than yielding it and ourselves to God and his power and his control, we we experience exactly what David experienced as he didn't stop his eyes from gazing and being fixed on what he saw and he allowed lust to grow and then he sins for Bathsheba. He calls for her. He says, who, who is this, who's this woman that I saw? And the implication is he describes her to his servant in waiting and the servant recognizes who he's talking about and he says, well, my Lord, the king, this sounds exactly like Bathsheba. Isn't she the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In other words, David, you know who this is. You know Uriah. He's probably been to their house for dinner because there's a relationship that he already had with Uriah. He said, isn't that who that is? That doesn't stop David. He sends for her anyway. And after all, he's the king, so what is she going to do when guards come to her house to collect her? So she goes to the house. David sleeps with her. Sends her on her way, has his itch scratched. Then later she sends word, I'm pregnant. So the sin that was originally committed, it it didn't stop there. And, And the story of David's terrible sin, it doesn't stop there with that one night with Bathsheba. Because when he found out Bathsheba was pregnant, he tried to cover up his transgression by getting Uriah to violate his own sense of duty and dedication as a soldier by returning to the comfort of his home and specifically the comfort of his wife. When that didn't work, because Uriah was a man of integrity, a man of character, when that didn't work, he decides to just take him out of the equation altogether by ordering Uriah killed, which is the same as directly murdering him. He might as well have held the sword in his hand and done it. He has Joab, his commander, put him right in front of the fiercest fighting where he knows he's going to be struck down. Even though, in addition to being Bathsheba's lawful husband, he was also David's personal friend and one of his most trusted and elite soldiers. We know that Uriah was part of the mighty men of David. That's like the special forces. He was like part of uh, David's innermost circle. And he was a friend, and that didn't stop him. Gets him out of the way. So he goes from lust to adultery, fornication, to preconceived murder, and murder. And all of this is is political cover-up of a grand nature. But thankfully, thankfully, David's story doesn't end there. Despite all that he did here and other places, he was still able to be known as a man after or like God's own heart. How? How? 
How did he come back from that? I mean, this kind of action that we see in David's story here, at this part of the story, this is the kind of stuff that gets people arrested. This is the kind of stuff that forces CEOs to resign. This is the stuff that causes presidents to resign and to be impeached. This is what ruins entire ministries where pastors have to step down and leave the ministry. This is what destroys whole families. You know, and and the the Pharisee in us all rises up at this, and we kind of become Jonah, where we say, no, not right, judgment, judgment, judgment. You know, and and we kind of bristle, like, how can he get away with that? That's the initial reaction of the flesh and of the Pharisee in us all. That's not right. He shouldn't be able just to be forgiven of this. He shouldn't be able to still be called a man after God's own heart. I mean, look at what he did. Well, the reason that he came back from this horrible failure, the reason he could still be called a man after God's own heart is because David understood something very important. David understood that making a spiritual comeback requires genuine repentance. Making a spiritual comeback requires genuine repentance. It's not that he got away with it. It's not that he didn't have to answer for it. He did. And even though it was months after the fact of this sin that took place that he was, he was called on it and he did repent, the fact that remains he repented. It was months that went by And God had to send Nathan the prophet to call him on it, to bring him to that place of repentance. But the point is, David repented, and he really sincerely did. And he understood, if I'm going to come back from this, then I've got to make sure my repentance is genuine, that it's for real. And we know that's the case because in Psalm 51, we're provided with a blueprint for repentance. We're shown what genuine repentance looks like what is required of it, what has to be part of it. If we're to really be repentant people, and we need to be, church, we need to be a repentant church that needs to occupy our heart and our mind all the time, that we are people of repentance. So the question then is, what does it actually look like? What needs to be part of our repentance? And we see that in great detail in Psalm 51. We're not going to go through the whole thing today. Uh, I encourage you to do that. If you've not looked at Psalm 51 in detail from start to finish, it's a powerful psalm. Um, It's one of the best, if not the best, examples of what repentance looks like in all of God's Word. But I'm just going to focus in on a few parts that really stand out, that teach us a great deal, that show us a lot about repentance, and that shows us a lot about the grace we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Psalm 51, first two verses is where we'll start there. Verses 1 through 2. David says this, in connection with this sin that he committed with Bathsheba, Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from sin. We are always dependent on God 
for grace, always, all the time. Every breath we have is owed to his grace. But especially, especially when we sin. Grace, by definition, is what we could never deserve or earn, and it's always according to God's character. It's according to His faithful love in contrast to our unfaithfulness. His abundant compassion in contrast to our abundant selfishness. And true repentance will always recognize that contrast and will recognize that's our only hope. God's grace is our only hope. His faithful love is always our only hope because of our great unfaithfulness. His abundant compassion is always our only hope because of our abundant selfishness. And when David says, blot out, blot out my transgressions, blot out my rebellion at the end of verse 1, he has in mind the wiping away from a debt book, a ledger of debt. This is a request for the black lines of sin which were willfully earned to be totally erased. And only God can do this, right? Only God can erase the deep, etched, carved black lines of our sin that we all have on our heart. There's only, only God can do that. No one else can. And he did it. God did that. Finally and fully with the blood of his son Jesus. The, the red stains of Jesus' blood is what he uses to wipe out the dark black stains of our sin as we come to him. So if you've come to Christ, if he is your Savior and Lord, the good news for you today is what David was asking for. It's your story that the deep dark lines of debt from sin that are in the book that God holds for all of us, if you're in Christ, they've been blotted out. And what remains is the scarlet lines of Jesus' blood. And in verse 2, it's right for David's prayer of confession and repentance that he, he offers here to ask God for complete washing or thorough cleansing, as your copy of God's Word might read, because that's what's needed. Complete washing. It's not enough to have a little bit. This is thorough cleansing. This is not like your standard tide wash. This is like OxyClean. Okay? That's what's needed here. Kicking it up a notch. And again... Again, it's something only God can do. Our sin always leaves a stain that is beyond our ability to completely wash away, no matter how hard we try. No matter how hard we might try to do it, no matter how much we may want to be clean, we can't do it on our own. Only God can completely, thoroughly wash and cleanse us from all the sin that we have built up. And then in verses 3 through 4, he says this, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Every sin, every sin no matter what other aspects are involved, will always be rebellion against God. At their core, at their source, every sin is a rebellion against a holy God. And a truly repentant heart understands that. 
And it will also understand that while our sin is against other people too, as David's was, it was a sin against Bathsheba, it was a sin against Uriah, it was a sin against Joab for putting him in the position of ordering Uriah to the front where he would be killed. And our sin is against other people too. Our sin is never just something that affects us. It always, always affects other people around us every time. And though that is true, it is always, our sin is always first and foremost against God. And our greatest offense in sinning will always be against him. So much so, it is as if he is the only one that we have sinned against. And even in our sin against others, we still sin against God in our sin against other people. So it always goes back to God. So, so what David says here, while maybe not literal, it's still true. That our sin starts with God and it also comes back to him. And so David recognizing that is, is right and we need to recognize that too. That's how we need to view our sin. That's what a repentant heart will recognize and will understand and that's how it will operate. And because of that, as David said here, God will always be right and righteous when he judges sin. And my friends, he always has to. God has to judge sin. To be God, he cannot let sin just go unchecked. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't ignore it. That would not be a perfect God. Because to be God is to be just perfectly and consistently. That's why the cross had to happen. It had to preserve God's divine perfect justice. But also because of the cross... We know that God is gracious beyond comprehension. That's what the cross shows us. Shows us his justice, but it shows us his grace and his mercy that blows the mind if you think about it. And so in Jesus, we today, all of us, can fully experience what David asks for in the next verses. I want you to look at verse 7, and then we'll also just skip over to 9 and uh, verse 10 as well. Verse 7, David says this, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Turn your face, verse 9, away from my sins, and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's the cry of David's heart. And it's the cry that should be on every heart. Once we understand the level of our sin and and our need that only God can provide in cleansing us of it. In verse 7, David asks to be purified with something called hyssop. And this is a very specific method of purification, obviously, he he zeroes in on this item. Hyssop was used to apply the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 over the doorposts when the angel of death would pass through Egypt and God told Moses, apply blood over the doorposts and as I see the blood I will pass over. It was applied with hyssop. Later in Numbers 19, the priest sprinkled purifying water on people and objects that were ceremonial unclean 
in accordance with the law, and they used hyssop to do that. So David here is making that connection, which he obviously was very familiar with. In this prayer, he's asking God, this is just so so beautiful and awesome, he's asking God in this prayer to personally be his priest by taking hyssop, which is reserved for the priest to use. He's saying, God, take this hyssop, be my priest, pass over me with judgment while also purifying me from my uncleanness in breaking your law. Don't you just see the huge arrow pointing to the Savior, to Jesus in this statement? Because that's the need for every sinner. Every sinner has the need to be purified completely and and to be purified by by the priest, by the great high priest. And in Christ we have that. As Christians, we repent not to gain this kind of purification. We don't repent so that we get it. We get this purification. We repent because we already have it in full. That's why we repent. Your motivation for repentance, Christian, is not to gain God's favor and not to have some magic ability by that that repentance right there to be right with God. We repent continually because we are constantly right with God by the blood of His Son. All that we have received through Jesus, that is our motivation for constant repentance. And through Jesus... We can be confident that the Father will, in fact, turn his face away from our sin, as David prays for in verse 9, that he is able to do that, all because at the cross the Father turned away from his Son instead of from us as Jesus became sin for us. And now, for all who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, as Romans 8 1 promises. If you're here today and you're in Jesus Christ, you've given him your life, he's your Savior and Lord, there is no condemnation for you before the Father because Jesus took it in your stead. And the Father can turn away from from your sin and my sin, not because we deserve it or, or we can do anything to earn that or because he's looking away one time. No, it's because he already looked away from the Son who became all of our sin in our place. And along with this fact, we have available to us the transformation and the renewal that David knows he needs and he asks God for in verse 10, where he says, renew a right spirit within me, create in me a clean heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit offers to all of us all the time, every time we sin. And that too is all because of Jesus. He's the one that makes that possible. See, we we all need a a new heart given to us every single day. We all need the right spirit within us that we can't manufacture or generate. And just as creation itself was an act of God that only he could do, miraculous, so is the creating a a new heart in us. So is giving us the right spirit that we need. It's, It's a miraculous act. And it's available to us through the Spirit of God, all because of the Son of God going to the cross for us. So David's story didn't end in the the failure with Bathsheba. 
David received the forgiveness and the cleansing that he was so passionately seeking. Not because God looked the other way or David was just that great of a king and deserved it. No, it was because David understood the seriousness of his sin. And he turned from it. And he turned back to God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is not just, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I've got caught in this sin. I'm sorry about that. Oops. True repentance is understanding the severity, the gravity, the depth of our sin. It's making a connection between the sin that I chose and the sin that kept Christ on the cross. It's grasping that. This is not a light thing. It's not a minor thing. I have chosen to do that which caused Jesus to leave heaven and come and hang on the cross for me. I've chosen that again. It should wreck your heart as a believer. It should devastate you. But it doesn't leave you there. It doesn't leave you wrecked. Repentance also recognizes that as as great as my sin is, God's grace is greater And as great of a sinner as I am, Jesus is a greater Savior. It recognizes that, it grasps that, and it acts on that by turning away from the sin that we just chose and going the other way toward the God of grace. That's what repentance does. And that's what David understood. And because of that, David was able to experience the comeback. He was still able to be called a man after God's own heart because he had a repentant heart. And that's always, always, always what God desires and requires. God desires a repentant heart and he requires it. And as that's the heart that we have, if that's your heart and that's my heart, then we too can always experience the comeback like David did, like Moses did last week as we, as we talked about him at length. Those comeback experiences can be our comeback experiences too. Every moment, every day, no one is beyond it. But it does require a repentant heart and spirit. Would you pray with me? I am going to going to close us in prayer in just a minute, but before I do, um, I need to ask, this is actually for the believer. I'm asking this question of, of you who are in Christ. You have a relationship with him. He's your Savior, your Lord. You know that. My question to you, though, in light of your relationship with Christ is, how's your heart? And where is your heart? Do you have a repentant heart and repentant spirit? Have you today? Have you grasped the seriousness of your sin? Have you come to God in the way that you see on display here in Psalm 51 in the verses we've looked at? Again, by no means did we cover the bulk of the psalm. There's so much richness there. But just with what you heard today, does that sound like you? Does that sound like your heart and your spirit? Do you come to God 
with a similar heart that you see David had as he came to God? Or would you have to be honest and say, I don't really know that I've pursued repentance this way. I don't know that I can actually say that this is part of my heart. Maybe you need to ask God to give you a truly repentant spirit this morning. Maybe you need to ask God to give you a heart for your sin like David had. If that's true of you, if you've not really, if you've not really been pursuing repentance in this way, I would love the privilege of praying for you that, that you respond to God and you respond to your sin in, in this way, that you have a truly repentant spirit, that that, that will characterize you going forward. So anybody would say, yes, I'd love to have you pray for me in that way. Anyone at all. Thanks for your honesty. Love to do that. Anyone else? Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. All right. Father, I thank you again for your word, the power of it, the relevance of it. I thank you for the impact that it will have on our lives if we will yield to it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit being our teacher this morning. And thank you for David's example. Thank you for the fact that he truly was a man after your own heart, not because he was a perfect man, not because he had it all together, but because he understood the seriousness of his sin and he turned from it and turned toward you. And he did that consistently. Thank you for what he shows us, what what a repentant heart must look like. And oh, Father, I pray specifically for those that raise their hands saying, yeah, I, I need to have more of a heart like that. I need to have David's heart of repentance toward sin. Father, I pray that you would honor their desire of their heart and, and that through your spirit you would empower that, that they would have a repentant spirit, a truly genuine repentant spirit. But I don't pray for just those. I pray that for all of us. I pray that for myself. That what would mark all of us is that we would be men and women after your own heart because we have a repentant heart, which you desire and require. May that mark us. And as a result of that, may you work in us and through us. We give you praise for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.